1: Welcome to the latest episode of Unleashing Brilliance. I'm your host, Janine Garner, and it is an absolute pleasure to bring my latest guest to you today. Today's guest is the incredible Holly Ransom. Holly is a globally renowned content creator. She's a powerful speaker and master questioner. with with the belief that if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. A little bit of wisdom from her grandma, which you are sure to hear very, very shortly. She was named as one of Australia's 100 Most Influential Women, Uh, By the Australian Financial Review, she's delivered a peace charter to the Dalai Lama. She was Richard Branson's nominee for Wired Magazine's Smart List of Future Game Changers to Watch. And she was awarded the U.S. Ambassador's Eleanor Roosevelt Award for Leadership Excellence in 2019. She's also interviewed some incredible people, the likes of Barack Obama, Richard Branson, Billie Jean King, and Condoleezza Rice. And she's all about fighting complexity with curiosity, about apathy with empowerment and fighting fear with fact. Um, Her latest book is the subject of this podcast. Her latest book is called The Leading Edge, and this is all about um, a call to action, um, a call to arms, as Holly says, for people to harness their own potential, to really lead better by asking better questions, thinking beyond those biased answers, and building a collective human momentum for change. In this book, she brings real world leadership lessons of so many diverse thinkers and pioneers that she's actually met to you, the reader, and in this case, the listener. I really enjoyed this next conversation. Uh, we talked everything from the challenges of leadership to challenging our own unconscious biases through learnings from her grandma to Malcolm Gladwell to Simon Sinek to Obama, right through to Holly's wish for the future. If you want to drive change and be part of the change, if you are willing to step up, if you are committed to actually becoming the leader that the world needs you to be, then absolutely get your hands on a copy of The Leading Edge and buckle yourselves in for a truly awesome conversation with the incredible Holly Ransom. Holly Ransom, I am so pumped to have you on today's podcast. How the hell are you, as they say here in (laughs) Aussie? I'm doing well. How are you, Janine? I am very good, considering this current moment in time that we are in here in Australia. Um, It's frustrating, isn't it? It's so frustrating. I was trying to explain to somebody the other day how we first met, and I actually couldn't remember. I know you very kindly. I think I interviewed you for my very first book, and then our paths have crossed at various events, and... The most magical time was San Francisco, 2019.
0: But I can't actually so remember where we first where we first met. Can you? I feel like Lane Beachley's involved. I feel like it might oh, have probably. been an Aim for the Stars event at some point, maybe through the wonderful web that is Lane Beachley and, and the great work that she does in the world. So, uh, and you know, she's an unbelievable connector of people. And I have a sneaking suspicion that was maybe where we first met, probably 20, 2013, 2014, somewhere around then. I think you are
1: absolutely right. Yeah, she always comes into my world at the strangest moments. There's nothing better than having an awesome cocktail and food. with one <laughs> yes,
0: Absolutely agree with <laughs> that.
1: Like it is. All right, let's get into this conversation. We have got so much to talk about. But before we do, just so um, our listeners can get a little bit more used to who you are and where you're from and all those sorts of things, a couple of quick fire questions.
0: Go for it. Um, What was your first ever job? Can you remember? Working in the back room of Star Surf and Skate in Murray Street in Perth. (laughs) So (laughs) I did that. That would be in parallel with sort of coaching sport. I I remember I coached uh, when I was 13 or so, I was coaching um, some maybe nine or 10-year-olds in, in basketball or something like that. But those two jobs, summer of uh, my 13th year, <laughs> that would have been my first job.
1: Oh, wow. My uh, my teenagers would be jealous of that, actually. they We constantly go into those stores and go, I'd love to have a, a,
0: a job here. I'm going, well, just apply. Just ring up and apply and I'm sure you'll still get one. So you're originally from Perth. I am indeed. Yeah, I've been in Victoria for or seven years now Uh, but yeah West Australian growing up. That's fabulous
1: and uh, I'm sure we'll hear a little bit more about that shortly particularly some of those wonderful family stories of yours. Now you've got a podcast of your own called Coffee Pod Mm -hmm. Um, so I've got to ask you what is your coffee of choice?
0: (laughs) I love that you asked that it's uh, a long black so an Americano for those who are listening from the other part of the world. Uh, They don't quite make it strong enough in America as far as I'm concerned, but uh, a long black if I was ordering in in Australia. Excellent. So
1: what we're picking up here is born in Perth. You've been living in uh, Victoria, in Australia for a while. You've spent quite a bit of time recently in the US. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious, thinking about your childhood and the community that you grew up in, Holly, how do you think that has shaped this incredible person that you are today
0: no oh, that's very generous of you to have said so thank you for that uh when it comes to wa i mean i think I'm, I'm lucky for two reasons one one is because my grandmother's an incredible human and i think those having strong influences in your world in whatever form they take whether they're parents siblings cousins grandparents uh early teachers which are definitely a category that were very influential in my world too I think that plays a really important role just in shaping what you believe to be true in the world and what you believe matters in terms of the values and kind of the purpose that you believe you're on the planet for. And so I'm very very lucky to have had a strong influence in that regard. I think the other thing that was probably fortunate about growing up in Perth, I mean, Perth in many ways, and and I mean this with love, so please, I I know this is always a comment that sometimes uh, jilts West Australians. It is in some ways a, a big country town. And one of the things I love about that is the sense of everyone knows everyone and it's a really flat part of the world. There's not hierarchy. It doesn't, I never felt like it mattered as much, you know, um, where you came from, what school you went to, et cetera. And the reason that was amazing for someone who was as curious as me growing up is you would bump into the mayor of Perth on the sidelines of a sporting event all the weekend or you'd bump into the CEO of West Farmers, you know, at Bunnings in the Sausage Sizzle and there was just this level of kind of accessibility and approachability, which I think meant I never understood that we were meant to have barriers between people. Um, Just growing up, it was really easy to ask people for advice. People were more than willing to make time or you'd inadvertently end up bumping into them and being able to have these kind of more informal conversations. And I think that was such a gift to be given in terms of just feeling like knowledge was that accessible and people were that accessible. Um, so I feel like that, that was two of the great benefits of growing up in the West. So what made you move? What made you leave WA? Uh, just as much as I, I loved it as a little kid, I think I, I knew I needed to go elsewhere by the time I sort of hit my early 20s. I I felt like, Mm. well, the thing that catalysed it, to be honest, was um, getting the opportunity to lead the youth summit for the G20. So I was very fortunate to get this Mm. call um, from the prime minister's office, which initially I thought was a prank call from the Perth radio station. And uh, when I asked, uh, they asked sort of, would you be up for you know chairing the youth summit for the G20? Um, when I realised what was involved in that role and we made it that year, the group of young people that were involved in 2014 into something much bigger than it had historically been, they sort of asked, could you run a conference for young people and bring them together? And we thought we can do a lot more than that. How about we try and actually influence the policy that's being developed this year? So I had about 197 flights that year, you know, in, in being in all the meetings and trying to get, you know, movement on policy issues and in, in gathering together with young people from across the country and across the world and uh I got about maybe six, eight weeks into doing that from Perth. <laughs> and I went, no way. You know, everyone's on the East Coast. Now just feels like the right time. So I actually packed up and moved on a red-eye flight and crashed on a Kate's uh sorry, a mate's couch for probably oof, I reckon three or four months before I kind of finally found my own my place to stay and just started life in Melbourne that way. So it was very unceremonious in the way that it started. Um, but it felt right. I just felt like I Um, needed to find my tribe, needed to find people that were going to push and challenge me in the way that I wanted to be pushed and challenged, and also that support network that I really felt like I'd been lacking up until that point. So it was as much a move about mental health as it was about professional growth.
1: And would you define that as one of the sort of key watershed moments that set you off on this journey that you've been on for the last few years? In terms of that
0: particular role, do you mean?
1: In terms of that opportunity, that phone call that you received that said, would you love to chair the G20, would you class that as um almost one of those key watershed moments that suddenly started off this trajectory of you leaving Perth, you becoming aware of the world outside of that, you getting involved in bigger pieces. Was that a watershed moment or is there something else that you... Pinpoint and go. That's when I worked out exactly what it was that I was put on the planet to do.
0: Oof, big question. I think. Mm. I think there's lots of little moments that continually evolve. That right. And I definitely think that was one of the biggest moments in my life today. More than anything, for the fact that. I've never felt probably more purposeful in the work that I am doing than in that year where you had this this extraordinary challenge that everyone told you just couldn't be done. You had the opportunity to work across business and civil society and with the labour unions and with young people from right across the world. And it was. It was a remarkable challenge. It was a rapid learning curve. Um, What we were doing was focused around youth unemployment, so it was really meaningful in terms of what we were trying to move the dial on. And so all of those factors together were just extraordinary, let alone the way that it challenged me as a, as a leader. You know, I, I'd never really done any work in government prior to that point. I'd done a lot of work in the youth sector. Uh, I'd done a bit in business and all that part, but certainly working at that level and being challenged with the responsibility of representing a, a group of stakeholders that I just so didn't want to let down. You know, there are 1.5 billion young people across the G20. It mattered so much to me that, the the opportunity that we had to try and do something significant for them was a responsibility we took really seriously. Mm. In that regard, it was incredible. And also the opportunity it gave me to just meet some extraordinary figures, you know, public leaders who have devoted their life to working in these policy areas and trying to improve the state of play for people right around the world. Um, Business leaders who are passionate about the role of business and solving social problems, incredible leaders in civil society. You know, that was remarkable as well, just to see so many people in their respective endeavours who were so on purpose and making such a significant contribution. It was also really inspiring for that reason, I think. So absolutely, that was um, definitely a watershed moment.
1: So Holly, there is there is so many avenues we could take in our conversation. From uh, you building businesses, uh, you interviewing some of the most incredible people on the planet, um, some of the stuff that you've done where you've challenged yourself. But what I'm I'm really excited to talk to you about is your new book. The leading edge, um, which which is I've been lucky enough to to read it um, in soft copy. I can't wait to get my hands on the hard copy. It's coming. And there are so much gorgeous, lovely stories that you interweave, experiences, uh, background information, the stuff that you know you'd love to be a fly on a wall about. So I thank you for gifting the time to actually write that book. But I want to thank ask you, you this: we challenge. You challenge people to, as you say on your front cover, to dream big, to spark change and to become the leader that the world needs them to be. That's a bloody big ask. <laughs> really a big ask. So my question is tell me more about, you know, why is it so important to you that people step up, that start that they start dreaming big, that they become the leader that they can become.
0: I think plainly and simply, because it's the only way it gets better from here. Um, I think what we know right now is that the people that we have sitting around decision tables, the people that we have wielding power, uh, the people that we have at the the various helm of different organisations, and I'm not seeking to undermine the the good intention that might have come with a number of those people, uh, some maybe not so much, but certainly a lot of them. But we know that they haven't been able to provide the leadership and the solutions, the challenges that face us in this moment. And in fairness. I think that's because and part of what the book seeks to explore is this idea that leadership as we've kind of taught it and thought about it for a a period of time isn't match fit for the challenges of 2021 anymore. And what this book really serves as is both that kind of rallying cry, as you said, to get everyone to go, hey, I can be the change I want to see in the world and it's my responsibility to step step up and be that leader the world needs me to be. But at the same time, here's a toolkit. Here's actually some lessons from the feet of leaders that are out there having impact in new and imaginative ways. And I think the the big thing, I mean, Janine, you mentioned I'd spent some time over in the U.S. One of the big reasons I went to America to, I was very fortunate um, through a Fulbright scholarship to get to go to Harvard to study, was to do the literature review on leadership. You know, let's go and look at how we're teaching this. Let's go look at the stories we're telling. And the big glaring thing that hit me there was the stories we're not telling. Uh, overwhelmingly, the stories of leadership mm-hmm. and the paradigm of leadership is that of a a privileged white male, more often than not, military general, elite sporting coach, or like a Jack Welsh type business figure, maybe more recent times, a Silicon Valley success story, like a a unicorn or something like that. It's not the story of women. It's not the story of people from diverse cultural backgrounds. It's not an intergenerational story. It's not the story of people with diverse sexual orientations or whichever way you want to cut leadership. And I think that's an enormous part of the problem. A lot of us have not been told a story about leadership that allows us to see ourselves in it. And we absolutely have to change that because the only way we move forward from here to the the nub of your question is to get each and every person acknowledging that they are a leader and realizing that the sphere of leadership that they lead in, however they want to define that, family, community, their team at work, their organization, their their country and whatever way you feel you're meant to show up and to lead that matters enormously and, and that's the reason that I open with a story of my grandmother you know my grandmother I tell the story of being four or five years old with her in the queue at a supermarket when the man in front of us proceeded to really aggressively tear apart the young woman on the checkout because she'd given him the wrong change and without even blinking, my five-foot-tall grandma, Dorothy, <laughs> inserted herself between this guy that appeared a giant in my mind at that time and this poor girl on the checkout and pointed her finger up at him and said, how dare you talk to that young woman like that? You apologize. And I just remember watching all this play out. It's the earliest memory I've got. And it's, it's like it happened yesterday. It's that seed into my brain. I remember watching this. This a guy, he looked like he'd never been told off in his life. He sort of took a few seconds to gather himself, you know, grabbed his things, mumbled sorry, and sort of ran out of the store. I remember saying to grandma, I said, grandma, that was so brave. And she said to me, honey, if you walk past it, you tell the world it's okay. Now, what I love about that story more than, than anything, you know, it's, had, it's grown in its meaning and its significance in my life over time. I didn't know fully all that it meant then, but it was a very powerful moment, enough that it's the earliest thing I can recall. But my grandma had no formal title there. She wasn't manager of the store. She wasn't a leader. She wasn't even half the size of the guy that that she was stepping into kind of correct the behavior of. But what a phenomenal example of leadership. Nobody needed to give her the keys to leadership for her to step in and go, that's not right. And I'm going to do something about it. And I think that's the way we need to be thinking about leadership, that those small moments matter as much as big movements. And each and every one of us can step into that uh, in our own way every single day.
1: Love that. And I love the way I've got this picture in my head of your grandma doing just that. And this is what's so awesome uh, within the book, that you share these beautiful stories, real-life stories of your grandma alongside the stories of presidents of uh, religious leaders, of incredible game changers. And so throughout the book, you're interweaving exactly what you're talking about. You don't necessarily have to have the title. Um, Your grandmother sounds like an absolutely incredible, incredible woman. Can you share the story for the listeners around the poker table one? That one made me giggle. (laughs) And it actually also really landed with me, particularly with what we're facing right now in the world, where we can either very quickly fall into a place of blame I don't have, I can't do this and expecting other people. But that story is just a wonderful example of how actually all of us have tools at our hands if we choose to see it.
0: Absolutely. Um, So I I tell the story, you know, my my grandmother is the sweetest person on earth. You know, she's it's unbelievably selfless, but she is also an absolute demon when it comes to playing poker. Nobody, nobody can bluff quite like grandma. We had this uh, sort of very ugly, almost um, toad gnome type of trophy that would chisel the the name of the family poker winner every year growing up. And I think it's just grandma, 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 grandma. It almost became redundant Mm -hmm. in the end. Um, (laughs) We could have got it tattooed on ourselves, really. But um, I remember playing quite vividly with her, uh, with my two brothers and one of my cousins when just one day when we were looking to you know uh, kill some time. I think in the, the afternoon, and I think Grandma was getting to the point where she needed to get dinner on, and so she was trying to wrap the game up, bring it to its natural conclusion. So she's sort of bidding up and up and up and up, and in the end, all this a bit like when you spit the dummy playing Monopoly, you just throw everything up in the air and kind of wander off. I remember asking her to, to show me. Um, her hand, and grandma had managed to clear all of us out with a pair of twos. I had a better hand and I hadn't gone and matched her and kept going. And I just remember having this, this moment and she she looked at me she she winked. She got a, a devilish wink, my grandma, and she said, kid, any card that you're dealt can be an ace. It all depends on how you play it. And, you know, it just struck me in that moment, again, a lesson that has come to take on a, another level of significance with time and reflection than it did in that moment, But that idea that, you know, we're the ones that make what we make are the cards we get dealt. And it's really, I guess, in essence, my grandma was an early Carol Dweck in terms of growth mindset and that idea that, you know, we're we're not fixed with the capability we get. We can apply it. We can grow. We can continue to evolve. Um, And there's so many different ways we can choose to put our talents, our capabilities, our resources to bear in order to have impact. And I think one of the lessons that comes through, and I, I talk about a lot in the book, is it all starts with the story that we tell ourselves. Um, so what's the story we're telling ourselves about our our own cards before we think about what it is that's the story that we're telling on our and therefore what might we be emboldened to play based on the story that we tell ourselves? So I think for me that's just some of the, the well, many uh, pearls of wisdom I've got from Grandma over the years. And I think one of the things that's always been so powerful in the way that she's taught and probably reflective of a number of the mentors I feature in the book as well is she taught not through saying but through doing? And I think there's a lot of power in that in the way that we role model. You know, it's, it's one thing to make a statement. It's another thing to demonstrate it. And uh, I think there's a lot to be said for all of us reflecting on the significance we have as role models in the lives of everyone we interact with. Um, and this activity I encourage people to do in the book that was a, a gift offered to me by Paul Roos when I interviewed him, uh, the, the kind of legendary AFL coach each of us sits back and instead of writing our job title on our business card, puts a line through that and instead writes chief role model, and then you define your context. Is that in the context of your family, again, that your organization at work, the small business you're running, the community leadership group you're involved with, the the nonprofit you volunteer with, whatever it might be. And then think about if everyone in that context is looking at you as their chief role model, how does that mean you want to show up? How do you behave? What's the attitude you bring? How do you respond to challenges and setbacks? I mean, that's an activity that, that I've done since Paul shared it with me, and it's such a game changer. Uh, I think in in kind of the way that you then challenge yourself in the significance of the contribution that you make. Because sometimes I do think, Janine, to your point earlier around that, is it too big to challenge everyone to be a leader? I think it's really easy in this day and age with everything being at scale. Everything's hyper big. You know, it's you know, that whole Silicon Valley mantra: don't get out of bed if it's not going to touch five hundred million lives. It's really easy when you hear a lot of that jam down your throat in the noise of the media to think that your contribution doesn't matter, to think that you stepping in and intervening in a supermarket line isn't significant, to think that uh, the way that you're demonstrating behaviour on any given day at work isn't significant, but it absolutely is. And I think when we ground ourselves in that chief role model role, we challenge ourselves on the significance of how we show up much more than when we let ourselves be victim to kind of the noise of the story that wraps around us and can tell our story for us if we don't actively shape it.
1: What does your chief role model business card say, Holly?
0: (laughs) Well, it it actually starts with something grandma shared with me, which is that idea, you know, for me, uh, like it is to begin with that I would never walk past it. So on my chief role model card, for for those who are wondering, it's actually sitting on the wall in front of me. I've got uh, chief role model, master questioner committed to helping emerging leaders find their answers. And I mean that not in the sense of age. I mean that in the sense of anyone who's challenging themselves on the contribution they're making and the change they want to see in the world. And then I write, I never walk past it. I feel compassion first and I start before I'm ready. And and kind of throughout the book I explain why those are core tenets of my chief role model card.
1: Hmm. Love it love it, I want to talk about that questioning piece a little bit um you know one of the things you say in the book is you wrote this to prompt people to start asking more questions um and this this it becomes really obvious as you read the book that it actually is through the questioning that often the answers that we are seeking we find or we explore or it opens up debate that we've we've never had before and I know. When um, I was over in the US a couple of years ago, there was this moment um, where we were really challenged on our unconscious biases that we all have. And that it was only through questioning and getting curious and willing to have your own biases changed that it actually flipped the conversation. And it reminded me in the book where you share the conversation you had with Malcolm Gladwell around this concept of the time it takes to build trust. And I think there's there's two sort of really interesting ideas there. One is you know, this this underlying conversation about lack of trust out there in the world type of conversation. And then at the same time, the need for all of us to just find a little bit more time to actually truly understand what's going on. So you've got this what, crazy dichotomy going on of people <laughs> not trusting. And at the same time, in a busy world, the very thing that we need is time to be able to try and work it out. So I'm curious to explore from your perspective that concept a little bit. Maybe if you've got an example of a story or someone that you've met that has exemplified or even expand on that Malcolm Gladwell conversation, that that need to actually, doesn't matter what level of leadership you're in, it doesn't matter whether you're a mum in a community, a philanthropist, a leader of a multi-million dollar organization, this need to actually invest more time than we probably think to both build trust, build understanding, mm. get curious, to explore, to actually try and find the very answers that we need to lead the change.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think I, I love that that was something you you picked up on through the book, because it is the reason sort of every chapter of the book ends with a question and that intent to kind of provoke uh, I guess, thinking and and also challenging people on the application of some of the ideas too, to help with that idea of how might some of what you've just read apply to your world and context? Because I do think there's this implementation chasm between like these great ideas. To your point, it's we're so busy and our bandwidth is so stretched that, you know, for some of us, it's it's enough to even make the time to do the reading or the listening or the absorbing of the information to begin with. And then there's this piece around the reality of having to disrupt our habits to think intentionally about how we apply it, and that's kind of the 2.0. And and one of the the stories I love in the book, you know, having the opportunity to interview um, Dr. Genevieve Bell, who's just an absolutely extraordinary brain at the forefront globally of the AI development, leading the 3A Institute at ANU here, but really was at the forefront of Intel's development uh, in its early days in Silicon Valley and the like. And she talks a lot about the importance of looking back in history too, not in order that we get answers, but in order to inform the asking of better questions. So she says a story that, you know, we've often misinterpreted, for example, the the story of AI. And a lot of us uh, think that it's an advent of a new technology that really at the turn of the millennia sort of was developed, where she takes us back to the 50s and 60s and to these rooms that were the origination of AI that was, you know, really an effort to um, by largely American uh, researchers at the time uh, to think about the, the role of AI in defeating the, the Soviets uh, and, and also just calls our question to who wasn't in that room. You know, when we were thinking about how to architect mm. AI and we were thinking about the purposes it serves, the opportunity to look at history allows us to go, oh, wow, maybe what are the blind spots here? Who might we have missed the perspectives of? Who, who may not this be a use case for? Um, and if we are continuing to scaffold on that foundation, what might the problem be with this the architecture at large that we've then built? Do we need to re-explore and re-establish what the foundations are? So I, I think the power of questioning is absolutely critical. It's one of the reasons I love moderating and hosting conversations, and I feel so drawn to that space, because I'm a big believer that until we're asking different and better questions, we're not going to get better answers. Um, and as Einstein said it better than anyone, the definition of insanity is thinking we can keep doing the same thing and get get a different result. Yes. So that need for it to start by prompting thought. I love that you've also drawn attention to the intentionality of needing to pursue our blind spots. Um, one of the, the big moments for me, and again, mm-hmm. it's a great mentor who taught through example, I think, or through powerful storytelling at least, is my first mentor when I established my first business as a 19-year-old. Um, I tell the story of going to my first ever business event, I knew nothing about how to run a business. I'd, I'd started because a mentor had challenged me into it and said, hey, some of the work you're doing in the nonprofit space has application to the corporate world. How about you have a crack? I thought, why not? Okay, and then I figured, all right, well, the, the two things I'm going to do to try and you know get, get caught up rapidly, I'm going to read my personal MBA, which felt like trying to rapidly synthesize a whole bunch of business knowledge and I'll join a business forum because maybe by osmosis, I'll kind of learn all the skills and tricks off other business leaders. And I went to my first event and and I probably stuck out like a sore thumb. I'm sure I was in ill-fitting clothes and I evidently was half the age, maybe three a third of the age of a lot of the people in attendance, but nobody talked to me. There were two people in the entire of that event. There would have been over 200 people at that event that actually spoke to me that day and both of them are still in my life today, John and Peter. Both of them are incredible teachers and the generosity of their time and their thoughtfulness and the way that they empowered me Uh, They really made me believe in myself and continue to, to this day, make me believe in uh, myself and what I'm doing. But one of the great things John did when he was teaching me early was he rocked up at a coffee meeting and just slapped a dice on the table. And that was unusual. John teaches in kind of different ways. And so I was looking at him quizzically going, what are we doing here? And he said, what can you see? I said, I can see a dice. Like, what are you playing at? And he said, no, be more specific. What can you see? And I said, I can see a six. And he said, well, I can see a one, which one of us is right. And I looked at him again and I went, well, we both are. And he said, bingo. And he said, there's something I want you to remember in what we've just done here. You know, one is that there is always more perspectives than yours. So the goal in life and in leadership should always be to try and get as many of those perspectives as possible. So to your point, who are you asking the questions of? How are you trying to make sure that you're intentionally diversifying who you're inviting to the meeting, bringing to the table, et cetera? Um, He said so you need to make sure you always know that it's never just your perspective. He said the second thing is never to discount your own perspective just by virtue of the fact that there are others. And I think that was equally as important as the first. So just because yours is one of several, you know, however many there might be on a particular issue, doesn't mean that your voice, your consideration, your questions don't matter. I think that's really important for some of us to hear sometimes because it's difficult when we're voicing what might feel like an alternative perspective, a different view. I mean, Janine, you and I were talking before we started today that uh, it feels uncommon, perhaps unpopular at the moment to be talking about mental health and well-being in the context of, you know, what are very real, very challenging economic conversations. And that sometimes it's difficult to be that person that's asking the question, hey, how's everyone going? Actually, can we keep going at this pace, even though it feels like we kind of have to? Being prepared to ask that blind spot question or that question that's kind of the elephant in the room that no one's really going to can actually be a source of something really powerful and important, you know, that moment of reflection, that moment of changing strategy. So I think that for me was a really great example of just that power of the perspectives of the questions too. And one of the things I always challenge myself on when I'm working through issues or thinking through subject matter is to step back and go how many sides of the dice do I think I can see here and who might be able to offer another perspective on what I'm looking at and how do I go and find them? Who do I need to reach out to? Who do I need to be asking questions of um, that can illuminate the blind spots that I've got?
1: Which requires a significant amount of bravery sometimes, right? Definitely. Because bravery in terms of slowing down decisions making or uh, taking the next action, bravery around bringing other people into the conversation. You know, one of the uh, lines you wrote in your book was around humanity being the, ecle- the collective power. And, and I wonder whether we are actually truly getting humanity on the table.
0: Mm. I wonder
1: actually whether as much as we talk about this stuff, whether therein lies the problem, that it's going to take significant bravery to ensure that the collective power of humanity is involved in the decision-making. Now, you've spoken to incredible people. I'm curious, um, who, who do you reckon best represents that concept of understanding that humanity is the collective power and therefore Mm. taking that place of leading edge um, has shown how powerful it is from one person bringing collective together, leading themselves to lead others, ultimately a living, breathing example of your book essentially.
0: Oof, big question. Uh, And Mm. I'll go with my gut reaction on it immediately when you ask that question, uh, Muhammad Yunus, uh, who I had the opportunity to interview earlier this year, Um, in a conversation for a series uh, called Energy Trailblazers. So talking to people that are at the forefront of um, trailblazing in their own right, but also have a trailblazing perspective on the future of energy, climate change, sustainable, uh, renewable, cleaner future. And I mean, he's an idol of mine. So I I went and worked in microfinance uh, as a 20-something. I was very fortunate to have some time over in Kenya. I'm a uh, for those who aren't familiar with him, he's a Nobel Peace Prize winner who effectively originated the concept of microfinance with $27 out of his own pocket in Bangladesh that has now grown into a multi-billion dollar lending model that has been a game changer in the development context right around the world and particularly for for women. You know, 96% of Grameen bank loans go to women um, and it's just been quite remarkable to see what happens when we we give you know, that whole notion of don't just, you know, um, teach them how to fish, you know, uh, sorry, don't just give them the fish, Mm. teach them how to fish and give them the capability to do so. So for me, when I think about his entire disposition, everything is always about bringing everyone along, who's not at the table, how do we give voice, option, choice, resources to more, to other, um, and also just even in the context of the climate conversation, the fact that largely it is a collection of developed countries that are making consideration where the often at the moment some of the very harshest realities of the current climate situation are falling on our developing country counterparts. You know where you know you've got sea levels rising, you've got extraordinary challenges in uh, you know situations where standards of living are far worse than ours as a starting place. Let alone with how climate is pushing and stretching the dimensions of that. So I can't encourage people enough if you're looking for someone who embodies that idea even again he was the first person when i've asked him about the question about leadership you know he said i would i would challenge that it's not leaders in the context of the word itself it is everyone that needs to lead it is not the young and is not the old it is not one color or another it is everybody that needs to realize this and it's interesting to me in all the conversations i've had that that was probably the most directly Someone had asked a question of that nature to took on that notion of who was meant to be included in that conversation and who we needed to empower. So your book,
1: The Leading Edge. Um, what is your wish for this book? And who should buy it? Who needs to read it?
0: Hmm. Great question. Well, look, I hope, I hope everyone will. <laughs> no, but in all seriousness, my wish is that this can help empower people who are frustrated with the state of play right now and believe in a better tomorrow and who are sitting there going, if I believe in and I want that for me, for my world, for my children, for my friends, for whatever way your motivation might be geared, then I acknowledge that I have a role to play in that. Um, And so for anyone who's sitting there, I I kind of call it constructively agitated. (laughs) You know, you're frustrated, but with a want not to sit there and throw stones because we don't get any better by sitting here Um, and and it's easy to do it. I've I've hand on heart done it many a times, throw stones at Canberra, throw stones at, you know, different situations of frustration that, that we all find ourselves in. But anyone who I think is going, you know, I'm hungry and I want new ideas. I mean, this book, as I said at the outset, was an attempt to disrupt the stories and the role models of what leadership is, looks like, and the tools that people are using very actively. So there's 60-plus case studies in this book. It's an equal gender split. There's leaders from 20-plus countries, 42 different sectors. You will meet uh, people that you already know without a doubt, feature stories of interviews with people like Condoleezza Rice and Malcolm Gladwell and a few of the other names, Janine, that you've touched on. But I'm pretty convinced that the stories people will be talking about afterwards are people they haven't met yet. And I hope in that it breeds life and gives inspiration and motivation. And it's a very pragmatic book. It is written with the goal that you can put these ideas into play and that it's not the case study of just these, you know, unaccessible billion dollar companies or, you know, whatever it might be, That, that there truly is so much diversity in this and then so many, here's how, that you can really pick this up and run with it. And I hope in that way, people will see it like their favorite recipe. Try this stuff on, Go. This is awesome, but we need two tablespoons of honey in this, or throw in some raisins, or whatever way that you want to play with it to do you. This is not intended to be a. Um, this is not intended to be a static document. I want it to be living, breathing, and I hope this embarks on a new conversation. So, for me, anyone that sees themselves as playing a role in the leadership moving forward from here, uh, constructively, collaboratively. Uh, and in a way that um, can help us realise a way through some of the big challenges ahead of us, I really hope they read this book and I really hope as well people who see that leadership and see that potential in others will think about buying it for them and encouraging them Um, and then writing a note in the front cover saying you're at the leading edge of what's next and I hope this emboldens you. I hope this helps you move forward, helps you grow, Um, helps you run harder faster you know approach it differently or just stand wherever on earth you are right now and own every bit of you um that that's really my hope for the book
1: oh everyone should everyone should read it one of the stories one of the characters personalities that has a constant presence in the book that we've already talked about is grandma (laughs) if I were able to bring grandma
0: onto the podcast right now Mm
1: -hmm. what would you say to her
0: Oh, bless. One of the the most amazing moments, actually, of the whole process. Um, So my my grandpa was hospitalized um, in May. So I I, I make mention, grandpa's 92 this year, grandma's 90. They've been together 70 years this year. And I flew to Perth um, at the 11th hour to drive down south to see them because it was every – Every belief that grandpa wouldn't make it. And I'm very lucky to say he's still alive today. He won't leave hospital now, but he's still, he's still there and grandma's still visiting him every day and they're, they're still able to spend that time together. But I was very lucky that, um, it was a truly beautiful moment, um, that my uncle happened to be down south and nobody down there's got a smartphone. There's no Wi-Fi at the hospital. So since May, which was this brief window where Victorians could get to WA, I haven't, haven't seen him. I haven't been able to communicate with him. I talk to grandma really regularly, but uh, they actually called me on video uh, with WhatsApp video and grandpa, I got to see him see the book and there was just tears and it was just so special. And uh, to see grandma unwrapping the book and her reaction my grandma was an absolute stoic because I think I give the impression in the book and so to see her get emotional uh reading the dedication it's the book is dedicated to grandpa and grandma was just everything that was unbelievably special so I think if if she joined now aside from uh you know what she called me last week to tell me was that none of her friends would believe all the nice things I said about her in the book <laughs> and I said well you tell me their addresses and I'll send them a highlighted <laughs> copy then <laughs> Um, I think other than that, she would she would just say that um, one of the things that strikes me about our conversations a lot is she reflects a lot on the change that she's seen in her lifetime. Uh, you know, going from, you know, as just as reflect on, you know, a nurse during the polio epidemic, right the way through wars. I mean, that generation have so much to teach and share with us, and they are so unbelievably re- resilient with what they have been through. But one of the things I love about Grandma is, is that optimism, you know, that, that the next baton change will lead us forward. And I think she would be encouraging those listening to be a part of that baton change, to pick it up and run forward. Because I think right now, you know, she's the first person to say, we need new ideas. We need new thinking. This isn't right. But that comes with an unwavering confidence that it will emerge that just like every challenge that's faced us as humanity before, we will find a way, but that way is not going to be persisting with the status quo of how we're doing things right now.
1: Mm, I love that. Final question. I was going to ask one of your questions that you tell people to ask in the book. See, it is a very pragmatic book that gives you actions. (laughs) And the question was going to be, what is the question I didn't ask? Um, You'll have to read the book to put that into context. But what I do (laughs) want to ask you, Holly, as we wrap this up, is you know all that change, you mentioned all that change that your grandma's seen, and I love that concept of passing the baton on. Mm. So the baton's been passed on to you. What, what is what is your hope for the change that needs to happen? And if we bring it to leadership, I'm not just, I'm like you, I don't just talk about leadership at the top level. I believe absolutely every single person has the opportunity okay. To lead their particular little spot in the universe and drive change accordingly. But what does what does that change mean to you? If I get there's a big long you know universe ahead of us, but in our lifetime, mm. what would you like to see happen from a change perspective?
0: Yeah, I think probably one of the most tangible ways I think about that is just in in uh, the diversity of people that are stepping up and making a contribution. And so I would hope that when I asked a question in a room full of people, as I've done when we were allowed to gather uh, in person and say, you know, hands up, who thinks there's a leader? They're a leader. um, That we would have the entire room of hands go up, not just the people that have the title, not just the people that sit in the corner office, if that's still a thing in some companies. uh, But the, the idea that everyone puts their hand out. I think certainly we would see that in a reflection of who is sitting around decision-making tables, uh, who it is that's featured as the spokesperson in media articles, who it is that has the opportunity uh, to share their ideas uh, and make a difference. You know, And whatever metric we're looking at, we know that that's not the case right now. We don't have enough women in leadership. We don't have enough young people uh in leadership we don't have enough cultural diversity in leadership and and this is talking about whether we're talking about politics whether we're talking about boards whether we're talking about executive leadership whether we're talking about local council and government you name it whatever kind of sphere of our lives we want to talk about there's not too many that are reflective of the community that they're leading and serving and so i think the more that those two things Mm. can start to look alike um the better. And that's one of the things that I hope for. It's one of the reasons I've been so intentional in trying to share those diverse stories. I think, um, you know, one of the stories I open with is uh, having the opportunity to interview Gina Davis and her reflection with her Institute's work on the fact that the narratives that we're putting in front of young people are still overwhelmingly lacking the protagonists that look like them. You know, we don't have enough women. We don't have enough people with disabilities. We don't have enough uh, people of different cultural diversity. We don't have enough people LGBTIQA. Like we need to do a better job of making sure for the next generation that they can see them and they see diversity. And so when they're at 10 and 11 and 12, asked to draw what a leader looks like, and I've done this activity in many a primary school, we don't see everyone drawing a man, In the office of the prime minister or a man that's got ceo written on a name badge um and i think that's a really important role it's not and i want to be very clear i'm not anti-men and this is no way a book that's intended to be that way there are great male leaders and it's a very like i just want to be flat out clear that that's not what i'm saying Mm. but i think there's an acknowledgement at large that we definitely need a more diverse set of perspectives and as well, we need a new set of leadership tools so even when we are in leadership positions, male, female, whatever, we've got the opportunity to be engaging a far broader audience with the way that we're talking and leading. We're moved away from a hierarchy where you can push orders down the line and get people to follow. So, you know, trust now is contingent on, on that poor leadership. I want to follow you. I'm pulled towards your vision, the values that you live by, the way that your behaviour matches what it is that you say. That stuff matters increasingly now, and so all of us need to be empowered and emboldened with that sort of toolkit, and that that's really my hope for where leadership is is moving, not just we see more diversity in its occupation, but we see a much more empowered approach to the way that people lead and who they bring with them on their leadership journey.
1: Yeah. Holly, I think your book, The Leading Edge, is everyone should read it. Um I think it is open to everyone. I think the stories in there, the diversity of stories from hierarchy, gender, cultural heritage whatever it are is um offers so much insight. And like you said at the beginning of this conversation, you're essentially putting out a call to arms to anybody that wants to dream bigger that wants to be part of that change um and you're saying become that leader that the world needs you to be so when is the book available where can people get <laughs> it from and how can they get
0: hold of you if they want to continue this conversation well thank you janine i really appreciate uh the fact that you've, you've already managed to devour it all in uh, in shaping this conversation so it's been such a delight to get to talk with you about it uh, so it's available now at all good bookstores. You can get it online through uh, Booktopia or the Book Depository or Amazon. You can also listen if you like. Uh, so I actually did record the version of the audiobook, so it's on Audible now. Uh, I spoke to a friend on the weekend who joked that she felt like she'd spent all week with me. <laughs> so <laughs> that's available if you prefer to do the the, uh, the listening variety. And then if you're eager to, to reach out, I'd love to continue the conversation. You can find me on on any social media platform you happen to be on, or you can drop me a note um, at holyransom.com. Um, there's plenty more information about me there. And I, as I said, would love to continue the conversation and, and talk about the way that this material is meeting you and um, how it's impacting you and how it's making you think about the world. I'd love to engage in that feedback.
1: Holly Ransom, thank you for the impact that you're already making on the planet and your commitment to lead the change. And thank you for giving permission to everyone else to step up and to be the change. It's an awesome book. Cannot recommend it enough. And uh, I really, really, really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much, Holly.
0: Thank you so much, Janine. It's been awesome to get to talk with you.
1: We hope you enjoyed listening to The Janine Garner Show. Follow her blog, purchase her books or find out more. Visit her website janinegarner.com.au Brilliant people. Extraordinary results.